Okay, I see how this is going to go now. Uh, yeah, that was, wow. He has more than one song, clearly. I, I don't know as we need to hear last night's over again because it sounds like you have more and more and we're grateful for that. Uh, it, I love to celebrate the Lord, especially the resurrection. Uh, it, it is our hope, right? It is that confidence that we have that this world and all of its issues and all of its trials is not really for us forever. And, and so thank you for that, that Ron. I appreciate that. Um, Matt Brooks sends a very personal letter to the evangelists before they come to Syker, uh, making sure that we know all of the things that are happening here, all the logistics, everything that's expected of us. And he began to talk about the morning service in his letter. And I, I, I thought you'd be interested in it. I, 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 seriously, I appreciate because our friendship goes way back. And so a little bit of the letter, it said, Dear Lane Lohman, I, I appreciate um, when you forget to take out last year's evangelist and put in the, the new evangelist name. No, not true. He didn't do that. Um, although I imagined it as I read the letter. Uh, he, he mentioned, though, that this first service is the stalwarts, he called you, the stalwarts of Camp Syker. And I wanted to be able to preach well, know the crowd, know who's going to be here. And so I did what anybody would do and looked up the definition of the word stalwart uh, to make sure I knew what he was calling you. And, and he said, it, it says, in, in, here's the dictionary definition, a loyal, reliable, and hardworking supporter or participant in an organization or team. So that's who you are today that I've come to share this message with. And that's high pressure to say anything to stalwarts that they haven't already heard a thousand times before. And yet I decided to accept that challenge, not that I needed to tell you something new, but rather to see if you're actually believing and doing the stuff that you've heard a thousand times before. So if you have your Bibles or the Bible on a device, I want you to turn to John chapter 3. John chapter 3, which many of you probably memorized in between your cookies and Kool-Aid at Vacation Bible School, and you've heard it a thousand times. Now, oftentimes we think of John chapter 3 as for those who've never heard of Christ or need to hear the message so that they could put their faith in him. But when you think about it, the character in this story that Jesus was talking to, Nicodemus, was actually one of the great insiders, the elites of the faith, the faith of that time. And, and it's interesting when you think about that, that really John chapter 3 should be delivered more to those of us who are on the inside, not the outside, and really be carefronted with the realities of what Jesus was telling Nick at night. Now, now have, you ever, have you ever had the opportunity to meet someone that you wanted to meet for a long time? Uh, maybe that's a celebrity, uh, an athlete, an author, um, maybe even a politician. It, 
It, it could be any of those. Maybe the cook at Denny's who always does a great job on your Grand Slam. I don't know. Who it is that you maybe have always wanted to meet. The Bible has many one-on-one, face-to-face encounters between people in Jesus. And how does Jesus handle those one-on-one, face-to-face encounters? And this is one of those. Now, John's gospel is all about the deity of Jesus Christ, that Jesus was, in fact, God in the flesh here in this world and on this earth, relating and connecting to humanity. And so Nicodemus is starting to understand that there's something special about this guy. He's the ultimate insider, and all of his colleagues are against Jesus for various reasons, not the least of which is probably pride. And so he has to set up a secret middle-of-the-night encounter with Jesus. And I've wondered often if Nicodemus had to think through what it might have cost him had it been discovered that he went and approached Jesus for this one-on-one conversation. Because, you know, it was easy to confront Jesus when you were out in the crowds and you had all your bros around you. It's another thing to go one-on-one with him. What was he feeling that he would risk so much for this conversation. So today, I just want to talk plainly to you as my friends, you stalwarts. And I want you to try to imagine just the two of us unpacking Nick at night. Now, I hope we all learn something from Nicodemus that will inform our future one-on-one encounters with Jesus, assuming, of course, that stalwarts have those. So Jesus has just gone ballistic in the temple courts, turning over the tables of those who had desecrated the sacredness of temple worship and prayer. And John says at the end of this story that Jesus could care less what people thought of him because he knew what was going on for real in their hearts. And then he tells this story. And I just want to unpack a little bit of a time beginning with verse 1 of chapter 3 of the Gospel of John. Now there was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a member of the Jewish ruling council, and he came to Jesus at night and said, Rabbi, we know you are a teacher who has come from God, for no one could perform the miraculous signs you were doing if God were not with him. Now I'm just going to press pause there and simply say this. When you're face-to-face with Jesus, it's important to know who you're meeting with. And and I say that who, capital W-H-O. Who is it that I'm meeting with? Because often, I mean, we talk about a personal relationship with Jesus, but, but listen, he's not just my buddy that walks down the street with me. He's still God himself in the flesh, And that's why it's so important to know who it is you're meeting with when you come before him. One of the things that I like to do when I I go to lunches near 
uh, my office is uh, if there's time and they don't seem like they're too busy, get to know the waiters and waitresses a little bit. We often ask them, hey, what is it that we, we're going to pray for our meal? What's something that we can pray for you about? And they always seem to appreciate that, whatever their background. And so I struck up this uh, conversation with my waiter at O'Charlie's. And he introduced himself to me, Amir. And I said, well, Amir, you know, what do you do beside waiting tables? He says, I go to IUPUI, which is Indiana University, Purdue University, at their Indianapolis campus. And, and I said, really, what are you majoring in? And he said, I'm majoring in motor racing technology. Motor racing technology. Well, where else would you have that but Indianapolis, right? And... And I, I said to him, oh, that's amazing. I said, do you do internships as a part of that program? And he said, yeah, we do. He said, but I've just started, so I'm not that far along. And I said, well, when you're there, when you're ready for that, here's my card. Call me up because we have uh, the owner or the former owner of Panther Racing. He's a member of our church, and I'd love to connect you guys, and, and you could perhaps do an internship with Panther Racing. And so sure enough, he called me. And he said, I'd love to hook up with, with this guy in your church. His name's Gary. And, I, and, uh, and find, so Gary takes Amir to the Panther Racing headquarters and introduces him to John Barnes, who's now the sole owner of, of Panther. Well, part, part principal owner, Jim Harbaugh is actually a part owner in that. Sorry for all you OSU fans. Um, but, but, the, but the fact is, um, uh, John met Amir, and they're sitting in this room and, and getting ready for somebody else was supposed to come to the meeting, and he was going to interview Amir for an internship with their team. And, and, and it was great because this guy walks in, and he said, hey, I want you to meet Tony. And Amir meets Tony, and, and Tony asks him a lot of questions about what he's doing and what's his life all about, and, and really was this super kind guy. And he leaves. And Amir is telling me this story. He said, it's so funny because John Barnes then asked him, he said, do you know who that was? And he said, I'll be honest with you, no, I don't know who that was. He said, that's Tony George, the owner of the Indianapolis Motor Speedway and the Indy 500 series, the IndyCar series. It might be good to know who you're meeting, especially if you want to be an intern in IndyCar racing. He's meeting the Mac Daddy of IndyCar racing and didn't even know it. And I feel like... That's true of many people who approach Jesus face to face. That they don't have a clear understanding of WHO, who this is. It was certainly Nicodemus's issue. John makes his case with John the Baptist's testimony about Jesus back in chapter 1 and all of the things he said about him. Nicodemus had figured out this much. There's something about this guy that tells me he's at least from God. He's at least somewhat important. And, and it's interesting because Jesus references back to Nicodemus in terms of his teaching credentials. But here's how he refers to him right from the start. Rabbi, at least I know this much about you. You're a teacher who has something to say to me and to all of us in our generation. It was a title of respect and reverence. Let me pause there and say that again, and reverence. The idea that at this point, 
He only saw Jesus as an important teacher, and yet he speaks to him as rabbi with reverence, and yet he has no clue yet exactly who this is that he's talking to. And Jesus explains a little more. Let's fast forward to pull it all together. Jump to verse 15. Jesus says that everyone who believes in him will have eternal life. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. Every verse believes in him. Not just believes what he teaches, but believes in who he is. I mean, you can meet a lot of great writers, a lot of great teachers, a lot of people um, give you some pretty cool nuggets, a lot of wisdom, but none of them are him. And every verb, every verse having this word, believe in him, what in the world does that mean? I mean, is that just my intellectual acknowledgement of who he is, or is there more to it? Actually, the word comes in the original language, the noun of believe, pistis, the verb of believe, pistuo, but it's so much more than just intellectual assent. It means actually to put your faith in, to trust, or to ultimately commit to the thing or the idea or the one that you believe in. It's more than I acknowledge that you're a rabbi, that you're an important teacher. I mean, that's, that's as far as Nicodemus got. But it's it's saying that I believe your message is true. And therefore, I know who you are. And in knowing who you are, I commit to trusting you no matter what. Jesus' use of the word shows that he's declaring that he's got more than just some good teaching. He's got God himself. So, I mean, I look at you, all the stalwarts, all the insider elites of the faith, here giving themselves to days of seeking God at a rustic camp, and I think to myself, these are some serious believers, believers, but do I believe truly in who he is? Now, when I was a youth pastor, those were great days because you could pretty much get away with anything. And, and uh, we loved hearing Ken Davis uh, speak, first of all, because he was just so funny. Uh, you'd be in pain after you heard Ken Davis speak. And he told, tells the story of when he was in college. He was in a speech class, and so he chose the, the law of the pendulum as his topic for this speech that he had to give in class. And he puts a little toy up on the chalkboard. We had chalkboards then. And he hung it on a string, and he pulled it up, and he marked where he put it, and then, and then he would let it go, and it would do this. you know. And the, and the whole law of the pendulum is that matter cannot return any further than where it started, and it will actually fall short of where it starts at, on the pendulum based on its weight and ma- the mass and the gravity and all of that. I won't get into the whole uh, law. But he looks at the group then, he looks at the class, including the professor, and he says, do you believe in the law of the pendulum? And they all said, yes, we believe it. Now, Davis had hung 
from four large parachute ropes, 250 pounds in a bag, all metal. And he put a chair on a table, and he told the professor to sit in the chair. And then he pulled the bag hanging from the end of those ropes up to the face of the professor, and he said, do you believe in the law of the pendulum? And he let it go. It swung out, it swung back, and the professor dove off of the table. And he looked at the class and said, does the professor believe in the law of the pendulum? And they all said, no. And you see, that is the measure of what we truly believe. Is that not only should we have it in our head and in our heart, but will it ultimately inform and impact how we behave moving forward when the pendulum is coming back into our face? You know, it's interesting, C.S. Lewis said it this way, you never know how much you really believe anything until its truth or falsehood becomes a matter of life or death. It is easy to say you believe a rope to be strong as long as you are merely using it to cord a box. But suppose you had to hang by that rope over a precipice. Wouldn't you then first discover how much you really trusted it? And so, stalwarts, I ask you, do you really believe in who Jesus is? Are you even asking the question, Jesus, who are you really? Even believers need to ask themselves that question. Do you ever stop and ask that question, who is Jesus, this one that I've allegedly put my faith and trust in? Do I really believe in him? Do you ever wonder at the reality of Christ? Now let's back up and continue doing our reading in order and pick up at verse 3 of John 3. In reply to Nicodemus, Jesus declared, I tell you the truth, no one can see the kingdom of God unless he is born again. How can a man be born when he is old, Nicodemus asked. Surely he cannot enter a second time into his mother's womb to be born. And then Jesus answers the question Nicodemus is really asking. Jesus answered, I tell you the truth. No one can enter the kingdom of God unless he is born of water and the spirit. Flesh gives birth to flesh, but the spirit gives birth to the spirit. You see, men and women, when you come face to face with Jesus, it's not only important to know who it is you're meeting, but it's important to admit who you are compared to him. And I think that's another part of the reality of those of us who have been walking with him for some time. Here's Jesus talking to Nicodemus first in the third person. In verse 3, we see that. Unless they, or he is, born again. Talking about people in general. And Nicodemus doesn't get it. How can someone be born When they are old, he asked Jesus. His mind was only on the physical world. 
He was only thinking about what his five senses could ultimately experience or comprehend. There's another dimension all of us live in, men and women, a spiritual dimension to our life and our existence that even believers sometimes forget about. We tend to measure so many things by the physical world and our physical experience, our intellectual experience, our sensory experience. It's why we have so many opinions about politics. We have so many judgments on all of the decisions that are made that might allow our lives to be better or make our lives worse. And we tend to measure all of that in terms of the physical world and not consider for a moment that the Bible has laid all of this out and all of this world exists in a spiritual dimension as well. This is what he wanted Nicodemus to understand. He says to him, now in the personal, one-on-one confrontation, you should not be surprised at my saying, you must be born again. And here's why Jesus makes it personal. Fast forward again to verse 17. Jesus tells him that the world deserves condemnation. But look how God responds to what the world deserves. Verse 17, for God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but to save the world through him. You see, Nicodemus was a part of a group of leaders looking for the physical rebirth of the nation. They wanted to see the physical reality of all of them being in control of everything. He, Jesus' emphasis on the you in verse 7 showed him that this was a very personal response. You must be born again. Not you must hang out with people who walk with God. You must be born again. At the same time, the whole world is in the same condition. Everyone, whoever, he says in verse 16, needs this rebirth. Now, it's interesting because when you look at the heart of Jesus preaching, and actually John the Baptist preaching preceding him, it was all about this word that somehow has lost favor in the preaching of pastors around the world. That word, repent. Repent. Now, we tend to think of the word repent all tied together to this feeling guilty about things. And surely enough, we should feel sorry for disobeying God, the sins that we've committed. Absolutely. But the word repent also incorporates the idea of changing your mind. When we talk about repent, meaning turning from the direction we're going, it's all about saying, I've discovered in my intellect and in my spirit that I need to be going in a whole different direction in my life. I'm not just here at Psyker to hear a sermon and then decide I want a little fire insurance and embrace that and off I go, living life the way I always had, approaching the world with the same philosophy I always approached it. He's saying, and John was saying, repent of what you've been thinking because there's a whole new way to think. We need to be 
born again. I remember when I was in middle school not walking with the Lord, uh, and yet I knew I should be. And so I still had these prayers that I was praying, and typically I was trying to get ahead of my sins, get ahead of them. So in other words, I knew what I was going to be doing after the football game, so I prayed for God's forgiveness before the football game. I wanted to make sure I was covered in case something happened. And the truth is, a lot of people never grow out of middle school. They continue to just try to live a life with God, acknowledging his existence, but never repenting. Never changing their minds about the things that they've left hidden in their spirits. And that's why we need to be born again. I mean, the Apostle Paul lays it out for us in Romans chapter 6 when he says, For the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. I mean, he was a lot more than a rabbi. And he was someone who showed us who we really are and what we really needed. Now, what does this admission of who I am look like? What do, we, and we're going to talk about this a little more uh, tomorrow night when we dive into this psalm. But you may remember the story in uh, 2 Samuel 11 and 12, David and Bathsheba. I mean, here's this guy, king of the nation, and yet even he gave in to his own lust and ultimately his own pride and committed great sin against God, against Uriah the Hittite and Bathsheba herself. And in responding to the confrontation that he had with Nathan his prophet, who brought it out to him, he says this in Psalm 51. Have mercy on me, O God, according to your unfailing love. According to your great compassion, blot out my transgressions. Wash away all my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. For I know my transgressions and my sin is always before me against you. And you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight. So you are right in your verdict and justified when you judge. Now, men and women, this is an example of someone who gets it, who's someone who knows who he's kneeling before, his holiness, his purity, and compared to him, recognizes the guilt, the shame, the dirt, the sin in his own heart. And so he acknowledges that that's who he is. See, the reality is that some have never done any serious self-examination and any serious confession of the sin that's in their heart. Remember, he's talking to one of the insiders, the spiritual elite, and he's saying this is the reality that you need to repent. Even some of the important people of a camp or a church or a movement. 
You see, some believe they are Christians simply through osmosis or their parents or growing up in a church and it's just what I've always known or what I've always believed and I just hang out with Jesus' friends and I haven't yet comprehended the idea that Jesus wants me to actually hang out with him. Many people have never repented of their sins. And that's why when meeting Jesus face to face, you are given this beautiful opportunity for a fresh start. Even those who thought they started a whole long time ago. Nicodemus focused on the physical, tangible world. Physical rebirth was in his mind when Jesus was talking about being born again. Jesus counters with the spiritual the one who is born of water and the spirit. Water and the spirit. Now, there's a couple different ideas, and we have scholars in the tabernacle today that could unpack all of this in great detail, but there's a couple ideas of what Jesus meant by water and the spirit. Some would say it's simply the physical and the spiritual. Others would say that perhaps he means when you have faith, you are baptized and believe, And then the spiritual means the ongoing walk with God. In either case, it's clear that Nicodemus and you and I need a spiritual rebirth. We need to be resurrected from spiritual death. And it all starts with repentance. That message of John the Baptist and Jesus Because repentance is what opens up our heart to God's spirit moving in and taking complete control of the woman or the man that we are. Verse 18, whoever believes in him like that is not condemned. That's pretty good news if you ask me, but like I said, sometimes I just stand up here, celebrate myself, and you all just get to watch the party going on. But but look at verse 21. Whoever lives by the truth, and, and here's what he means, trusts, believes, has faith in, comes into the light, so that it may be seen plainly that what he has done has been done through God. You see, moving from darkness to light happens when God sees your sorrow for your sin. He sees the transformation of the cha- or the changing of your mind, and he hears your confession. It's then that he transforms you. Uh, Dr. Oliver Sacks is a neurosurgeon, and he wrote a book called An Anthropologist on Mars. Not a whole, really sure what the title means in his book, but in that book, he talks about or or tells a story about a guy named Virgil. And um, Virgil was a a gentleman who who at five, six years old developed these huge, thick cataracts on his eyes, so much so that he was virtually blind. I mean, he could see some shadows and, and, and maybe make out a color or two, but really he couldn't see. And Dr. Scott Hamlin, a eye surgeon, 
ended up coming up with a, a surgery procedure where he was able in his adult life, now 55 years old, to remove those thick cataracts so that Virgil could see. And it's interesting because Virgil's first experiences with sight after the bandages were removed were somewhat challenging. Uh, over time, though, he learned how to identify various objects and he could see faces and he recognized people and he eventually began, over time, his eyes began to heal even more and more. He was able to now embrace the physical world through his eyes for the first time. And yet what's interesting is that even though his eyesight improved, he found it difficult to function as a seeing person. He found it difficult to function as a seeing person. And in his op-ed then, in The New Yorker, as Dr. Sachs was recounting all of this from the story in his book and then the latest updates on it, he said this, one must die as a blind person in order to live as a seeing person. One must die as a blind person in order to live as a seeing person. That's exactly what Jesus was explaining to Nicodemus. That all of you needs to be reborn. Not this physical body or this physical brain. Rather, all that you are as a person needs to be taken from the darkness and put into the light and miraculously now able to see the design of God for your life. Now, whatever happened to Nicodemus? Now, some would look at John 12 and think that maybe he was one of those Pharisees who publicly professed faith in Jesus, but later, because the pressure was too great, decided to stick with the old message and be a critic. Um, but actually, John unpacks it for us in chapter 19 when we discover Nicodemus helping to prepare and then bury the body of Jesus after his crucifixion on the cross. This showed what it means to believe. This shows what it means to be fully reborn. That no matter the pressure around you, no matter the social pressure, the financial pressure, the familial pressure, the cultural pressure, no matter the pressure, you so believe in who Jesus is that you have totally changed your mind and he has helped you become reborn in your spirit, that you see the world only from his perspective and no matter the cost, the risk, you will follow him. And you begin to interpret then all that's happening around you from his perspective. And so you read your news feeds differently and you have your conversations differently, and you make choices for yourself and your family differently because you want those to be led by the spirit that comes into your life when you are reborn. Well, 
Sometimes I get to the end of these messages, and by the way, the end of the message is usually everyone's favorite phrase. But I get to the end of the message, and I just have to ask the simple question, so what? I mean, nice talk, Steve. So what? What am I supposed to do with this? I get it. I've been at Psyker. Life's all about relating to God. Thank you for that reminder. Heard that a thousand times. But listen, Nick, it's to transform everything in your life. It's to inform and empower you to live a life that says clearly to the world, I believe in him. Absolutely, unequivocally. And not only do I intellectually assent to who he is, I believe in him so much that I'm actually going to trust his word as best and right for my life. I'm going to live by his spirit. And perhaps right now, stalwarts, you need to seek, sneak off into the secrecy of your mind and have a face-to-face with Jesus yourself right now. Knowing for sure that, yes, I've walked in Christian circles, but I now want to be 100% fully devoted and reborn for his will to be accomplished in my life. Who is Jesus to you? And who have you admitted you are before his holiness? Today, he calls you to truly repent, to change your mind about holding on to the stuff of this world and the fears of this world, and to embrace him with all your mind and with all your spirit. Would you bow your heads with me? Lord Jesus, here we are now, just you and me, talking together about the reality of my heart and asking you, O Lord, to totally transform my spirit by your spirit. I confess who I've been and who I am. I pray that your word and your spirit would wash my, my mind and my heart right now. You pray your own prayer right there as you sit in response to what you've heard today to be encouraged and changed by this word of Jesus. You pray. Oh, Lord Jesus, forgive us for reading through John chapter 3 really fast because we thought we've already accomplished all of that. And thank you for awakening us today to the greatness of your truth and the power of your word. 
And we pray that you would open our hearts, show us anything that needs cleansed, help us to confess it, and best of all, help us to receive this beautiful grace that you offer to us, even the insiders. And we pray in so doing throughout today and this camp, we will be walking with you in ways we never dreamed possible. Thank you so much for this gift of salvation. In Jesus' beautiful name we pray, amen. Come on, let's stand together and let's close out the service in worship and sing for his glory. Let's stand together. There is a name I love to hear. I love to sing its worth. It sounds like music in my ear. The sweetest name on earth. Oh, how I love Jesus. Oh, how I love Jesus. Oh, how I love Jesus. Because he first Let's do the chorus one more time. Oh, how I love Jesus. Oh, how I love Jesus. Oh, how I love Jesus. Because he first loved me. So often it is, Father, that we come thinking we've got it all figured out. And then you remind us that when we meet face to face with you, we meet face to face, one on one with Jesus. But Lord, it's not business as usual. And so we come to a time and a place like this and Maybe we even see ourselves as the stalwarts of the camp. Lord, we hear a message that speaks to our hearts, that speaks to our minds, reminds us that there's so much more you want to do in every one of us. So Lord, we pray that we would come to you with open hands and open hearts, with minds that are ready to receive what you have for us, that we never come with an attitude. We've got it all figured out. Lord, we confess that at times we feel that way. Forgive us, we pray. And lead us in a new direction to be a people who are always listening, coming to those face-to-face encounters with you in humility and in asking for your grace and mercy to fill us anew. Lord, may we go in the strength and in the power that is ours in Christ Jesus to live transformed lives. We ask it in his name. Amen.